This morning, um, we are returning to 2 Kings. And, you know, this is a passage, that, uh, I'll be working through this over the next two weeks, um, uh, but this is the story of Naaman, um, this kind of, this Gentile commander of the Syrian army uh, who is in need of a healing. And it reminds me, you know, a passage like this, it's just so, it's beautiful. Um, as you begin to dig into it and you see what the author is doing, what the Lord is doing in this, on this occasion. And it reminds me of, of what the psalmist says about the beauty and the perfection of the law of God, that it indeed, it enlightens the eyes, it rejoices the heart, it's sweeter than honey and more to be desired than gold. There is a beauty in the word of God that when the Spirit opens your eyes to it, it's irresistible. And it does have the power to not just warm our hearts, but to draw people, to draw the lost uh, to the Lord. Indeed, the Word of God is a light. It is truth that delights the soul. And that's what we have here in 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, This morning, we're recounting the power of God's grace in the miraculous healing of this uh, commander, And we'll be working again. This will be over the next two weeks. Would you rise for the reading of God's word? Begin verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but... He was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of of Syria said, Go now. And I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger uh, to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, 
It is a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, may this passage of Scripture not be an exception. Allow us to go out strengthened and encouraged, able to see our place in the wonderful story that you are working across history. And we pray for the sake of the Savior who died for us. Amen. You may be seated. This narrative begins with a great man, a man who seems to have it all except for one devastating reality. He is a leper, and he is in desperate need of healing. At the top, we're introduced to this, uh, this man called Naaman, He is a commander over the Syrian army to the north and a close confidant of his king, the Syrian king, likely Ben-Hadad. Later, we will learn that one of the king's expectations was for Naaman to be at his side when he entered into the temple of of the Syrian god Rimen, which was um, a, a kind of Canaanite storm god. And this just demonstrates uh, the intimate relationship that he had with the king. It demonstrates his position, his status, and his power. And he was loved because of his success in battle. And interestingly, the author inserts this little editorial um, uh, uh, notice to us. He tells us that his success was given to him not by Rimon, uh, the the, uh, god of the Syrians, but by Yahweh. Now, this little editorial insertion is remarkable. It tells us already, it's telling us something very powerful about God. In those days, the gods were, you know, relegated to working within their borders, but not Yahweh. Yahweh is the God who created the world, no boundary holds him. Uh, And so the author is um, uh, confident in asserting that the victories, the success that, um, that Naaman had achieved were not ultimately due to his own resourcefulness, but due to the will of Yahweh. Yahweh is the true, and he is the living God. He has authority over all the nations. But this insertion would have been a difficult pill for the Israelites reading this narrative. This would have been a difficult thing for them to swallow because Syria at this time is... is likely um, the northern kingdom's greatest rival. They're the greatest enemy. They're constantly warring back and forth, even if, in the context of our passage here, there, t- there seems to be this kind of uneasy, probably temporary truce between the two nations. But make no mistake, the Syrians um, uh, were not well loved by the uh, Israelites. And very likely, one of the victories that God had given to Naaman was a victory over Israel. 
It wasn't long before when Ahab sallied forth with his troops into battle at Ramoth Gilead against the Syrians and the stray arrow is, and part of that battle, um, strikes and ends up killing King Ahab of the northern kingdom. And we also learn from the text um, that Naaman uh, is probably maybe as part of that battle or a separate raid, but as a result of another uh, raid into Israel, he's able to capture a little, uh, a small Israelite slave girl. They were not well loved. And our author is saying that not only did God grant uh, favor and victory to this Gentile commander, uh, but it also appears that this would have included victory over Israel. Which means, not only is the author saying that God is the sovereign God, which he is, and this should encourage us at the present day, he is sovereign over all the actions and interests of nations. But he's saying something more, and it comes in the form of a bit of a rebuke, probably not a subtle one. And the rebuke is, the reason God has favored Naaman is because of the northern kingdom's disobedience, because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord, because of their turn to idolatry. And it's just a reminder to these Israelites uh, that Yahweh has sided uh, in, in these cases with the Syrians against them. It should have served as a warning. It should have served as a kind of prod for Israelites to reconsider their spiritual commitment to the Lord and perhaps to repent at this time. Now, at this time, uh, with this uneasy truce, um, Naaman enters into Israel. With you know, He's surrounded by this fairly large entourage of horses and chariots that are with him. He's taking a massive amount of material wealth uh, with him as he goes uh, to meet with, um, uh, with the prophet Elijah. And what we're told is that the reason for this is because of this, this skin disease that he has, this leprosy. Now, we're not sure exactly the nature of this leprosy. So often we, we read this term leprosy and we're, we're thinking, you know, of modern day leprosy, what's uh, technically referred to as Hansen's disease um, that withers away the skin and attacks the joints and, and can lead to limbs being um, amputated and so forth. It's, a, it's just terrible. It's not clear that that is the, the disease that's being referenced to here. But what we can tell from the text is that this was incurable. Uh, this was a devastating disease, uh, which he had, um, shown by, by a couple things in the text, that he's willing to trade forth something like over 700 pounds of silver and 125 pounds of gold, along with 10, you know, uh, pairs of probably very wealthy clothing. This is a king's ransom that he is bringing with the hope that he can uh, translate that into healing. And then the words of the king of Israel are interesting. He must have some knowledge um, because the words of the king says when he gets this letter about healing Naaman, his response is, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure uh, him of his leprosy? This, this king thinks he's being set up, but, but what he's saying about the nature of the disease is, is that it, it's both incurable and it's like a dead man uh, whom only the Lord can bring back. And probably, you know, the, the, the way this, whatever the disease is, it's viewed as something death-like and, and something that only a miracle can change. Well, this brings us then to the small girl with a great faith. 
We're told that this little girl was carried off by the Syrians on one of their incursions. Um, she is made a servant of Naaman's wife. Uh, that's just probably um, more gentle language for saying she was a slave of his mistress. And this little girl immediately were introduced to her because she has a, this message of hope, uh, which she gives to her mistress. Verse 3, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now, it's interesting, you know, uh, that, that both the wife, the mistress, and Naaman give credence to the words of this small girl from Israel. Again, it probably just demonstrates the desperation that Naaman felt regarding this disease that he has. Maybe it is too good to be true, but he is willing to take the risk. And as it turns out, the little girl, she possesses words of truth. She possesses, possesses words of life. There is, in fact, a prophet in Samaria who is being used by God to do the miraculous. Now, we're never given the name. You know, there are these, these characters in Scripture you just wish you had a name for because you want to honor them. And this, is, this little unnamed anonymous girl is someone who is worth being honored. Her faith is inspiring. You think about it. She's, she's young, a child apparently. She's a foreigner living in Syria. She's now made a slave. And God is using her to reveal knowledge of, of available healing, of God's grace, uh, of Yahweh's grace uh, to the powerful elites of her day. It's clear that she believes in Yahweh. She believes in Elisha, uh, that Elisha is God's instrument. And through Elisha, that God is able and is willing to work these wonderful uh, things. And all of this is after the experience, you know, of a level of trauma that most of us can barely imagine. Ripped from her family, from her homeland. Good chance that her family, her parents, were killed in the process. Her immediate future, uncertain. She's made a slave. You can only imagine the questions, the confusion, the spiritual, existential questions that this child would have had in her soul. She, you know, if you were, you know, I think if I'm in this situation that she is in, what would that have done to my own faith? Would, not, would that not put doubt? <laughs> or if you believe, you continue to believe, but then you're just angry. You're bitter. Lord, why have you done this to me? What did I do? I thought you were the great redeemer of Israel. I thought you were the rewarder of faith, that you were good, that your steadfast love endures forever. And yet, here's this little girl, has every reason to give up on the Lord, to, you know, perhaps just give in to the worship of the, of the Syrian god, uh, uh, Rimon. But that's not what she does. She has a great word. And even with all the loss and the grief that she likely suffered, she does not lose her faith. And it's just the reverse. She becomes this powerful evangelist. I mean, think about it. She is, even if you're desperate, you think, oh, a young girl, what does she know? 
She had to really speak with a certain kind of confidence, a certain sense of urgency, a certain, you know, persistence to bring this message to a level that the the wife and then ultimately the commander takes seriously enough that he brings this message of hope to his own superior, to the, the king of Syria. She does not let her low status keep her. You know, you, you could even think, well, she could be thinking, I'm just a kid. Nobody's going to listen to me. I've got all these barriers. No reason to even try to, to uh, proclaim this message of hope and good news. And she lets none of that stop her. She is this little beacon of faith, of light, of courage, and a model for us. We have far less trauma, far less excuses. And, and so her faith becomes uh, an inspiration. So Naaman arrives in Samaria. He learns of Elisha's home base, and he his entourage arrive at Elisha's door. But then Naaman's uh, encounter with Elisha does not at all go the way he expects. And it's in this scene that we learn some important truths about God's grace, uh, the first of which I just want to highlight is the exclusiveness of God's grace. Uh, Naaman is not just offended by Elisha's lack of hospitality and rudeness, and it was rude, okay? <laughs> Elisha is violating, you know, these hospitality codes. This is, okay, you think of, you know, <laughs> around, you know, the, the Oscar time, people are talking about the movies that get snubbed or people who get snubbed, um, This is one of the great snubs in history, what Elisha is doing to the Syrian commander. He's not going to give him the time of day. He just sends his servant out with a very brief message and be on your way kind of message. And of course, um, Naaman is offended. Uh, But why? From Naaman's perspective, um, one, let's just talk about this solution that's offered to him, first of all. What is the message given to him? The message is, look, all you need to do is go down to the Jordan, to the river of Israel, dip in it seven times, and when you come out, you will be healed. That's the message. Simple, right? Well, from Naaman's uh, perspective, this just sounds entirely arbitrary and unreasonable, the Jordan River apparently at this time did not have a good reputation. It, it did not have a reputation for, for being um, a clean and, and pure uh, uh, water source. And in fact, uh, Naaman believes the Jordan to be filthy. He believes it to be contemptible. And so he just kind of blurts out, this makes no sense. Why would I dip in a filthy river? That, that's unworthy of a healing that I need. Um, why not send me back to Damascus? Why not to the great rivers of, of Syria uh, that are, are much uh, worthier and, and uh, far more noble of a healing that I need? You know, it's interesting. He views that it's narrow. It limits him. <laughs> it also seems a little humbling, you know. Um, it seems a little beneath him. Um, he's not willing to accept this. His pride is, is getting in the way of this. And it's the same, though, so often at the present time. When we talk about the need to have faith, we, we say, God, in his grace, has made a provision for your sin and for your guilt. And it has come at great cost to him through the giving of his own son, who lived the life we couldn't live, who suffered the most 
unimaginable suffering, not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. And he did it in our place. He did it uh, for us. And if you believe, it doesn't cost you anything. If you believe in this Messiah, this Jewish uh, Messiah, that God will grant to you the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, for a lot of people, that comes in, and that's just glorious, glorious news. But there are others who say, nah, baby, nah. That is so narrow. Are you saying that I have to believe in Jesus in order to receive God's forgiveness, to be made at peace with God, to be reconciled with God? And you see, it's the same result that Naaman is having. They're saying, it's too narrow. I want to be able to receive the the peace. I want to be able to receive the life that I'm looking for and to, to have this relationship with God that leads into eternal life. I want to have it, but I want it on my terms. And already in the Old Testament, we see this picture of the gospel that it is glorious, but it is narrow. It is limited. You know, it's like, and and the servants get this point. Naaman doesn't. The servants do. But it's like, if someone offered you, you know, tickets to the Super Bowl, but they said, you know, you do have to go to the will call desk, and, and you can only, you know, there's just one gate where you can use these tickets. Nobody here is going to be like, oh, I can't believe how limiting, how narrow this is. I want to go into gate 10, not gate A1. No, you wouldn't be saying that. You'd be like, oh, what a wonderful gift. Well, the servants get this, and they come to Naaman, and, and, and you know, they're using their best deferential voice. They're calling him the honor of father. He's not their literal father, but he, they're, just, they're coming with him, hoping to help him to see that this message is glorious news of hope. And they're not getting why he's responding the way he does. But finally, Naaman does listen. He goes down to the Jordan. He dips, and his skin is made new. It's described as new and soft as a child's skin. That is, it's not even the, the kind of skin that would be well if, you know, you just healed normally at a hospital or something, you know, skin that would still be, bear the results of age and, and the sun, the effects of working outdoors for a life. Um, no, his skin is, it's new. It is better than it would have been if it had just merely healed. It is like it's just been recreated, youthful in its, uh, in its glory. And so he receives uh, this full healing. <clears throat> and of course, this is a picture of something, isn't it? It's a picture of a deeper healing that, that both Naaman needs and that we need. It's a picture of the need that we have of sin. See, sin is the problem. Sin, it's, it's, we, the problem isn't a lack of education. It's, it's not a problem of, you know, uh, wealth inequality. Those are issues, to be sure, but, but that's not our ultimate problem. That's not the world's ultimate problem. The problem is we're rebels. The problem is we want to do things our way. The problem is we have rejected the creator of the world and his ways and his law. The problem is we have sin, and we know we have sin. Even atheists know they have sin because They don't know what to do with their guilt. Guilt is an affliction for every person. What do you do with your sin and guilt? We need to have it washed away. And God, in his glorious grace, has made a provision that through the shed blood of Jesus, that's what this is pointing to. Our sins 
can be washed away. And in this, we not only see the exclusiveness of grace, but we also see the inclusiveness of grace, the inclusiveness. So Naaman arrives at the house, um, and again, we see him snubbed by the prophet Elisha. He's deeply offended by this. He's livid. And so we need to say something else about what's going on here. Um, We can say, one, Elisha's refusal to go out and meet him is intentional. Okay, it's not like Elisha was busy, you know, I'm working on an important project, and unfortunately, I just can't make it out to me. That's not what's going on here. This is an intentional decision on the part of uh, the prophet. And there are two thoughts about why, from Elisha's side, he does this. Uh, The first one is that Elisha wants to teach a spiritual principle. Naaman needs to understand something that perhaps he believes that because he's a great man, you know, he's important, he's wealthy, uh, second, you know, perhaps in power to the king of Syria, uh, that he deserves kind of special uh, dramatic encounter with the powerful prophet. So maybe there's a spiritual lesson here. Naaman needs to learn that he's no different than any other person who's coming to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, for grace, for healing. He needs to understand that God is no respecter of persons and that he needs to come like any other person with humility, admitting his need. But there's also probably a second truth that is going on, a a, a more, you know, you might think of it as a more human um, uh, truth that is going on. And it goes back to what was said earlier The Syrians are enemies of Israel, even if they're like in this little truce at this point. The commander has inflicted pain and suffering on Israel. Naaman's own household is benefiting from the slave labor of at least one Israelite uh, captive. Maybe there were more. It's not hard to imagine that Elisha, though he would do what God um, uh, commanded him to do, but as an Israelite, he would do his duty and nothing more. He would help this Gentile commander, but not in person if he didn't have to. Uh, He'll make sure the message gets delivered, but he doesn't need to be the one to deliver it. It may be. And and later on, you see this when um, Gehazi, we didn't read this section, but Gehazi, the servant, is upset. Why? He's upset um, because uh, Elisha did not require payment from um, from the the commander. And he refers to him as that Naaman, the Syrian. It's very clear. There is an ethnic issue in the background here. Um, And and it's it's that the Syrians are their enemies, and they don't want to give support to their enemies. Well, if this is true, it means that Elisha has in part lost a little bit of sight of God's larger plan for the world. And indeed, what we are to see, though, is that in this healing and the conversion of the Gentile Naaman, that God's ultimate goal of bringing redemption, not just to Israel, that was never the original plan. The original plan was to bring light, to bring salvation to the Gentiles, to the world, to all all the families. When God makes his great promises to Father Abraham, one of those promises is, and through your descendants, all the families um, of, the, of the earth will be blessed, okay? This was God's intention from the beginning, that Israel would be a beacon of light, 
And in their day, it was more of a maybe a come and see kind of thing rather than go out and tell. Um, but Israel just strategically was a bridge between the three great continents of the world. And there were major arteries of, of traffic that would go through Israel. And they were meant through their commitment to the glorious law of God. They were meant in terms of how they conducted themselves and how they, um, uh, how they understood uh, uh, God's will for their lives to be a light to the nations. It was always meant to bring blessing. And here we see a token in the Gentile commander of God's love, a love that apparently Elisha did not have, but God's love uh, for the lost of the entire world. And so Naaman is just one of many Gentiles that will be attracted to the light of Israel's God as they are attracted to the wisdom and the beauty of Israel's law and of the word that God had given to them. Isaiah the prophet indicates that as the light arises within Israel, the nations will flow into Zion. And what we'll see next time um, is how, because of what the, the experience of grace that Naaman has, that this is going to change. Not, this is not just a physical healing that we're going to see. This is a spiritual conversion on, a, on the part of this Gentile commander. And what I want to say is, is that part of, even as we talk about the need in the New Testament for the church to fulfill the Great Commission by going out and proclaiming the good news of Christ, there is a part of this, though, you need to understand that we ourselves, as the gospel of grace is at work within us, as the word of God takes residence within our hearts and it's on our lips, that this itself is glorious to the world, that this is a light to the world, that there is an attractive effect where God's covenant, where God's promises, where his grace is taking hold and where it is effectively changing hearts and minds and lives and communities because of the coming of Christ. There is a beauty that we fail to understand and appreciate. That's why in Isaiah 60, referring messianically to the coming of Christ and the age of the church, Isaiah writes, Arise, arise, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see they all gather together, referring to the Gentiles streaming in. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Now they'll be your sons, your spiritual sons. And your daughters shall be carried on the hip. They're streaming into Zion, this, this Old Testament picture of what God will do as the light shines, as the attractiveness of God's people becomes irresistible to the world, the surrounding world around us. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, that is, those who live as far out on the sea, the wealth of the nations, so embodied by Naaman. He's bringing his wealth into Israel. They shall come to you, and this will lead you to rejoice. To thrill and exult is the language of uh, Isaiah here. The church is to be light. It's not just that it's supposed to be. It is light. 
It's to radiate that light of Christ. And more than this, the scriptures are part of that light. The word of God is this glorious beacon of truth. I was just uh, listening to a pastor um, uh, in a class, and he's just talking about, he just carries around Bibles in his car. Because he knows that if people will actually read and start reading the Gospels, if they begin to read the Word of God, the Spirit of God comes and opens their eyes, and they see just the beauty of the Word. And so often, it's like they're just irresistibly, like C.S. Lewis, they're irresistibly drawn to the light of the Lord that they see in it, ultimately, as it focuses and directs our attention to the God-man, to the beauty of the Prince of Peace, the King of Heaven, of Christ himself. May we be a beautiful people with a beautiful gospel, this gospel of hope about a beautiful Savior. Would you pray with me? Divine Redeemer, in you alone we behold the perfect pattern of what we ought to be and into what by your grace you are molding us. Hear our prayers, accept our praise and petitions, and send down upon your people the fullness of your grace. Grant that in all our trials we may be by your good grace that we would prevail and go forward in the path of life by your mercy, O Lord, who lives and reigns forever. Amen.